0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio Hello and welcome to Decoder.
1: I'm Nilai Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Matthew Panzarino, the former Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch. If you're a Decoder listener, I probably don't have to tell you that TechCrunch is a big deal. It is one of the most important trade publications in the world of tech and startups, and its annual Disrupt Conference is where dozens of major companies have launched, and quite a few have failed. Matt's been the editor-in-chief at TechCrunch for essentially a decade now, and he and I have been both friends and competitors the entire time. We've competed for scoops, We've traded criticisms, and we've asked each other for advice in running our publications and managing our teams. So when Matt announced last month that he's stepping down from TechCrunch and handing the editorship to strictly VC founder Connie Loisos, it felt important to have him come on Decoder for what you might call an exit interview, a look back at the past decade running a media outlet at the center of the tech ecosystem, with all the chaos that that's entailed. And oh boy, there is a lot of chaos when it comes to TechCrunch. The site was founded by Mike Arrington, who minted a generation of writers that went on to become VCs. Mike eventually sold the site to AOL, which then sold itself to Verizon, and then bought Yahoo, and then merged AOL and Yahoo together. Then Verizon realized it shouldn't be in the media business and sold the whole deal to a private equity company called Apollo Global, which put former Tinder CEO Jim Lenzone in charge. If that sounds complicated, that's not even half of it. That part where AOL bought TechCrunch? Yeah, that led somewhat directly to the founding of The Verge, although that's a story for another time. All of that is a lot, and Matt has somehow led TechCrunch with a steady hand through all of it. You'll hear us talk about how TechCrunch has grown from what was the singular extension of Mike Arrington to a much broader brand that remains indispensable to the startup community. Matt talks a lot about balancing TechCrunch's editorial responsibilities with the role it plays in that community, helping to promote up-and-coming companies and the ebb and flow of Silicon Valley's relationship with a site like TechCrunch. Of course, we also take time to talk about the future. The media business has been beholden to social platforms and search engines, but it's facing a new existential threat from generative AI and the broader changes in people's media habits. Could Google's push to blend language models with search engines turn off the business model of digital media? What happens when everyone gets their news from TikTok? It's a good time to talk to someone about this stuff, especially someone who's about to walk away. Okay, Matthew Panzerino, the former editor of TechCrunch. Here we go. Matthew Panzerino, you are the former editor-in-chief of TechCrunch, and also notably a good friend of mine. Welcome to Decoder.
2: Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it.
1: I'll just tell the audience, a long time ago, I tried to hire you to come work at The Verge when you were at
2: the next true, And we had long
1: conversations about it. And you're like, "Mm," and then we discovered that it was because you were going to go to TechCrunch. And then you became the editor of TechCrunch at a tumultuous time in the post-Michael Arrington era. TechCrunch is a, a fixture. It is a firmament of the startup ecosystem. TechCrunch Disrupt, I think, is one of the most notable events in the entire startup calendar every year. You really grown the place, and then I would say a couple of years ago you started telling me that you were you were gonna go. Like I yeah, would see you at uh, events and you'd be yeah. like, I don't know, man, my clock's ticking.
2: That would that would definitely it's uh, when you're that deep into the architecture of any system like that, extricating yourself takes time, and if you're of the mind that you want to do it right and you want to make sure that they're on good footing, etc. There's there always seems to be a thing coming that the hubris of the position tells you that only (laughs) you can handle, right? Only you can guide them through this next era. And there was a bunch of those. There was a bunch of those. So it took me a while, for sure.
1: So I wanted to have you on to talk about that run. You know, The the Verge and your run at TechCrunch have been in parallel for a long time. We've solved a bunch of the same problems in in different ways, which is always interesting to compare and contrast. And then talk Mm -hmm. about what you think happens now. I think we are at a generational reset in media on the internet audiences are different people are doing different things our distribution platforms are upending themselves left and right the company is called x now i don't know if you've heard um uh, yes <laughs> you know, google search is changing and then the, and then there's the looming sort of ai so i want to talk about TechCrunch a bunch and just get a sense of you know where where you're leaving this institution and then i just want to talk about now that you have a, a bit of a remove what you think happens next
2: Sure. Yeah, happy to. Happy to.
1: So let's start with TechCrunch. You took over when? Uh,
2: So I joined in late 2013 and took over as co-editor in January of 2014. Alexia Tzotis and I ran TechCrunch together for about 18 months, and then she went off to get her MBA and be a world-famous VC, and I stayed on as editor-in-chief. So I, I technically took over as EIC, fully EIC, in 2015, but was really – co-editing, running it, you know, uh, making the same similar kinds of decisions just in tandem, obviously, um, since January of 2014.
1: So we're closing in on a decade at the helm of TechCrunch in one way or another.
2: Yeah. Depending on how you slice the pie, it's been about 10 years since I joined and then a couple of months shy of 10 years since I uh, became sort of head of the pack there. Yeah.
1: One of the most interesting things about the TechCrunch story, and actually it's interlocks with the Verge story in many ways, Michael Arrington obviously started TechCrunch. It was a ferocious independent publication for a long time. Then AOL bought it, and then there was some drama. And then Arrington left and you you all took over. That mm-hmm. drama is why a bunch of us left AOL and started the Verge. Um, right. It's all tied up in there. It's a decade old. We don't have to rehash it. But that <laughs> that's what happened. You took over in sort of the aftermath of all of this, right? And the publication was geared around really one person or one set Mm -hmm. of attitudes, and now it is not that thing. Just tell me about that moment when you started moving it away from being about a person and more into a brand.
2: I mean, I think it it was an interesting time. When I was being recruited to join there, uh, there was definitely a lot of trepidation on my part because I'm not a drama-driven person. I don't really consider myself or consider myself an advocate of thriving in chaos. You know, I like to help people to kind of like flourish in an environment that they feel comfortable so they can be creative. So I was a little bit leery of that coming from a place where while we were very scrappy at the next web, there was a team ethos you know, that played out really well, we were, you know, fighting against the titans of the industry that we viewed, you know, in our small way, we, that's the way we viewed ourselves, you know, going into a, a place like TechCrunch, which already had its own momentum and reputation, and all of this stuff was happening already. It felt a little bit weird kind of going into that, because I was like, who am I, you know, to come into this and, and kind of make a space for myself, and then, you know, eventually, of course, lead the place. And so the way I looked at it is, I wanted to try to retain a lot of the things that I felt that Mike had established that were really good. These deep ethos stuff like, you know, why hire smart people and not let them do their thing? Why not lean into the expertise of these people who are strapping on their galoshes and kind of like wading out of the swamp of crazy new ideas and companies and technology? And so I try to keep that. I try to keep a lot of the the, um, kind of anarchistic ethos around editorial choice and story selection. Um, I think there's a lot of value in those. And then the part that I focused on unplugging and, and altering was exactly what you said, that like a, a large part of TechCrunch was built around being a vehicle for Mike, which is fine. I mean, he founded the thing. It was his thing. You know, he led it to what it was at that point and all of that. But stepping in there, I viewed it as my responsibility and my job not to replace Mike with myself, And say like, okay, cool, now I'm the new center of the TechCrunch world and all of this. And instead, I, A, Mike's irreplaceable, very unique individual. B, I had all of these really great, smart people that had been kind of bleeding out for TechCrunch over these last few years and in and amongst the chaos. And my job, I felt, was to give them ownership over the things that were important at TechCrunch, which obviously, you know, raising their individual profiles is part of it, but disrupt certainly you know, giving them more on stage time, help having them pitch in on programming and own those like asks and interviews all the way to fruition. Um, You know, the stage went from like, hey, Mike does a lot of, you know, the bulk of the interviews and a couple other people guest star here and there to you saw all my people on stage, right? Or the most we could, we could muster (laughs) or the most that we're willing, you know, some people just don't like the stage work, which is fine. Um, But that was the ethos, right? It was very simple, very straightforward. It wasn't, there wasn't some Machiavellian thing behind it, besides the fact that I knew we had a lot of really great talent. I wanted to make sure that they were able to see the fruits of their labors when it came time for disrupt or even editorial story selection. Um, You know, why not have these great people and, and use them to their fullest simple philosophy?
1: TechCrunch plays a really interesting role in the tech business ecosystem, particularly the startup ecosystem. Right, It is, in many ways, the publication of record for startups. It's just the most important thing. A lot of coverage in TechCrunch is very trade publication-y. It, here's some news that is happening in our industry. Mm-hmm. And then it also has disrupt, right, where there's a competitive element and showing up on that stage and doing well is really important. How did you balance TechCrunch's role? Because that always felt... Very difficult, right, to do Mm -hmm. kind of standalone journalism, but then also be so deeply enmeshed in the industry as one of its most important elements.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of my one of my pithy sayings, which, which my writers will probably groan if they hear, hear, listen to this podcast, which I don't advise they do. They've heard <laughs> all this before. But the, one of my pithy sayings is that TechCrunch needs to stand close enough to the fire to feel the heat, but not close enough to be hypnotized by the flames. And, like, the difference between TechCrunch and a broader publication or a, a very good, very well-staffed, very astute bureau at a larger paper of record, like the New York Times or, you know, journal or whatever, I'm not singling anybody out, but like any one of those great chunks of tech writers that exist within a larger organization, the differential between us and them is that we very, very, very specifically wanted to be as fast and close to this stuff as possible without, of course, abandoning all reason, right? And skating that edge literally is our job right? Or it is the job of TechCrunch, I should say. The idea that you would be able to suss out like nascent trends or new bits of technology that were being productized out of the ether, out of like academic programs or out of, you know, new technological discoveries or remixes, as we all know, of, you know, traditional businesses that were enabled by, you know, you strap a database to a laundromat and you've got a business, right? And like whatever the form that took, we knew that it was going to be happening like at the edges and, and continued to be happening at the edges of things. These days, it is a little bit different. And, and like the new EAC of TechCrunch and whoever takes it on from here will have their own job, right? Because I think, like you, that we are kind of at a watershed moment for, for media, but also for tech. You know, um, over the past decade, you and I have both seen tech go from a marginal thing that geeks cared about to everyone being forced to be geeks, right? Like every one of us are, right? It doesn't matter whether it's your grandma or whether it's your brother or cousin or nephew or parents. We're all geeks now because we all have to be. Because technology has invaded every aspect of our lives. And unless you're a Luddite or uh, a homesteader, and even then, all homesteaders are solar powered now, right? right? Like technology's everywhere, right? And so you, you have this shift where the spelunking is getting harder and weirder, right? It's really crazy. The speed of the loop between the time that something is nascent or weird or interesting and the time that it's everywhere is so quick. It's just so quick now. Like It used to be TechCrunch would know about a thing, and then 18 months later... Everybody else would know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and be like, "Oh yeah, you know, so and so was talking to me about. it. I went to hackathon, or you know, I, I was milling about in in a a bar, and we were. I was talking with some engineers, and they're like, "Oh, we heard of this new technology. You know, it's like, or this new programming language called Ruby, and you know, <laughs> uh, these guys are putting, putting together a package to make it faster. Like you know, and then twelve months later, oh, this is the first big company that has you know Ruby at its base. Right now, it's like you're lucky if you get a few weeks. Right? it's like oh uh, chat gpt is a thing and we we start covering them in 2000, uh, open ai in 2014 or 15 16 you know like you started covering them pretty early and um definitely llms like we were writing about those uh, definitely a decade ago yeah. for sure and and i'm sure you folks were too but then it goes from zero to a hundred so 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 quick now, right? So the job of TechCrunch has always been to find those nascent things, pull them out, tease them out, and talk about them earlier than everyone else. My byword for disrupt, as an example, like has always been like when we're doing programming, too soon. Like, how do we get people to talk about stuff that they're doing too soon? <laughs> like founders without PR teams, you know, that are just coming to like chat about this thing that they're doing that they're super hype about? Um, you know, what are what are the things we can talk about that are too soon? So that over the next year, people have this reference point looking back and going, oh, yeah, they were like, oh, they were on stage at Disrupt. Or we can at least remind them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> through marketing. Uh, that, oh, yeah, the, you know, we talked about these folks at Disrupt that kind of set the tone for this universe. In some ways, it's re- always reflective as well, right? Some of the big, bigger names that come to the stage. It's going to be reflective in nature. Uh, you know, how did you get here? What, what's your big learnings from XYZ? And people like to hear that stuff. Uh, but then the bulk of the programming everywhere else besides that stage was about setting the tone for what is going to be happening over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months.
1: We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll dig into a big question. Who gets to tell your company's story?
0: Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no-code's your thing or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs. Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers. Search Wix Studio and
3: find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from HIMSS. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. HIMSS knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at himscom decoder. That's h i m s dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
1: We're back, talking about the ideas of storytelling, narrative, and importantly, access. One of the things that I would call out in the past decade, right, is going direct. I hear this from founders all the time. I certainly hear it from VCs all the time. You don't need the media. Go direct. Find the audience. Tell your own story. And then the flip side of that that I see from my vantage point as running a large outlet is uh, you kind of need a story to validate some of what you're saying. Like just putting the logo of a big publication on your website, it means something to a lot of people. This other person wrote about us. And it kind of doesn't matter who. You can go pay someone to pay Forbes to do it. You know, it's like It doesn't matter. You get the logo. Did TechCrunch participate in that more or less as time went on? Because in the beginning, the only outlet that was covering any of these companies was TechCrunch, right? So it was the default. And the early TechCrunch was I mean, it was a spray and prey of press releases almost, and that has just yeah. dramatically changed over time
2: yeah, it has i mean i I think taste comes in you know to a lot of that you have to just build your sense of taste over time as the fire hose got larger and larger. I mean, as much attention as was given TechCrunch in the early days, now that there are thousands of companies being founded every quarter, um, you know, all of those want coverage in TechCrunch. And this is not aggrandizement, right? This is not some sort of like patting ourselves on the back. It's like, it's literal. Like, all of them want it. But I will say, it goes in waves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there is an ebb and flow to that that can ride on public sentiment. It can ride on... Trend thinking amongst PR professionals and comms professionals, the people that are, whose responsibility is to build the narrative of the company from inside the company. You know, it can definitely ride on their kind of whims. And then, of course, the big thinkers in the tech industry are like, oh, you don't need comms, go direct. Or you don't need, yeah. you know, publications, go direct, all that stuff. It can go in waves for sure.
1: My feeling is the people who are loudest about saying that are the people who are talking to us the most, by the way.
2: Oh, 100%. There's
1: always been the dynamic there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of us never really talk about it that much because we're like, whatever, you know, we got other things to do than to crow about this. But that is the fact that the people that are the most ardent about people not needing the media are the people who are in our inbox the most and texting and being like, oh, I got this company, you got to look at these people. You know, you it's this. This so good. I, it stands out. But the fact is, it's like, who tells your story is a choice right? And it can be. A a valid choice is we're going to tell our own story and not let anybody else ever tell it. But the fact is at some point, your narrative will become the property of the public, of other people, right? And so you can choose to say at the earliest stages, we're going to write our own narrative and control our own narrative. But (laughs) the conundrum is if you're successful, Your company is going to be scalar. That narrative is going to be the property of hundreds, thousands, or millions of people, especially if it's a consumer-facing company, right? It's an interesting choice that they go through to figure out, like, why they're why they're choosing not to talk to press or why they're choosing not to have somebody else tell their narrative. You have to be really sure of that. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I, I don't really care. We can talk to you now. We can talk to you later. We can write about you without your participation, which is fine. I mean, obviously, yeah. we'll reach out. We'll talk to you and say, hey, you're not going to stop us from writing about you, you know? Um. So the participation part of it is 100% your choice. And we don't, you know, there's never any feeling of, like, penalizing anybody for making that choice. Who cares? You know, like, oh, I get it.
1: The Times can do that, right? We don't need your participation. We're going to go and just do a bunch of reporting. Every now and again, The Verge is pretentious enough to say we can do that. And I think that's often when we do our best work. Like I fundamentally think access is poison. uh, And I think a lot of our editorial ethos stems from that. We have a lot of access, but Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I I tell – this is just two editors in chief doing their own sayings all the time. My saying to my staff is the less you need it, the more you get right? like Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, the less you need the access, the more it will be bestowed upon you because they they want their side of the story told, basically. Mm -hmm. TechCrunch has a really unique role in this ecosystem. Do you think that that's been in balance? Do you think that you see it differently over time or do you think it ebbs and flows and you have to correct it?
2: Yeah, it's always dials, right? The mix of editorial content from like oh, this is a funding story to this is a a growth story to this is a a story of something gone awry. Like those dials are always twiddleable, right? And you have to be. As an EAC, I think a lot of times depending on the type of personality that you have as a person, right? Because you are just a person embodying a role, right? And the idea that you are able to set an editorial policy around the mixture of like access-driven stories versus non or funding-driven stories versus broader tech stories or whatever, that you can set some sort of policy and let it ride for any amount of time is like hubris. Like it's crazy (laughs) to think that. You have to constantly have your hands on the dial, right? 24-7. You're looking at, the mix of stories hitting the site you're looking at the editorial calendar and you're kind of balancing that out and saying like okay look <laughs> we need to we need to pull this back right and that's like i usually would would write uh, an editorial note um it, it varied one a week was for a long time and then it was like okay one every couple of weeks because we have a lot of people who have been with techcrunch a long time and they don't need to hear from me that much you know <laughs> it was kind of kind of wild but you basically put out these memos and these notes and have just live discussions with your people that help you to tweak that mix and tweak that balance of like okay are we being too access driven on this are we not being proactive enough you know reaching out and and finding our own stories you know being sharks you know hunting your own st- food uh, versus being fed in your inbox by, like, oh, here's the thing. There's, like, a thousand things in my inbox I could write, so why go out and find the thing that's hard to find, right, to write about? Um, and that's just, like, an exhaustion thing sometimes. And, like, the best reporters can fall uh, victim to that, right, and be susceptible to that. But, you know, I think the access thing is weird because everybody does want attention from TechCrunch because, like, we don't have the largest audience in the world, right, for sure, but our audience is extremely, like high honey. it's it's like thick and you know, <laughs> sticky with all of the stuff that these folks want. It's the right audience yeah. recruiting additional funding and early early adopters, right? Um, all of those things. And I think that valuable audience is the thing. That draws people to us, but it is also like the danger, right? As a publication, you can be very easily seduced by this, like, oh, hey, if I feed this audience, like, you know, I can feed them anything, you know. <laughs> they'll they'll eat it because they believe us. But I think that's why, like, and we mentioned earlier, like ebbs and flows, like there were definitely periods of time where people were like, Don't talk to Techrunch, don't talk to any media or whatever, you know, and Stories got a little bit thinner and harder to, to, to tease out because there was a lot of mandates about talking to media and all that stuff. But the fact is, like, people come around. The value of narrative is a weird one because I think almost anybody that you talk to will be willing to ascribe a lot of value to it. Oh, yeah, narrative super important. Oh, yeah, storytelling. Storytelling, right? That's the buzzword, right? Storytelling is super important to an early company or any company. Um, however— when it comes time to, like, fund media <laughs> yep. or, like, invest in media or understand that the expense of media is almost wholly people. Like, if you look at the PL of a media organization, the top-line expense is always people, right? Unless you're doing something funky, right? And, no, we're going
1: to get to the AI conversation very soon. Don't worry about
2: it. Like, I'll give you an, the example. The external example would be definitely a big trend towards, hey, we need to own the narrative because the mainstream media is just not getting how transformative tech is. And they just don't get it, right? They don't get us and they don't get our world, whatever. TechCrunch has always dodged that a little bit because we do put in the effort to get to the white paper. and We write a lot about APIs and like (laughs) understanding that stuff. and, And they know that we grok that. But we have not been wholly immune, right? We've kind of been swept into the same bucket many times over the years of like, the media that just doesn't get it, right? Like that kind of universe. To counter that, I say, the VC apparatus and the whole universe there that has its own momentum and so much money and so much power and all of this, they tried to spin up media, Yep. right? They went through a whole era of spinning up their own publications because they wanted to go direct. They wanted to talk direct. And I didn't begrudge them. I don't care. Would I read it? I don't know, you know? It's weird how much they don't realize that the excitement and energy that comes from reading an article on a place like TechCrunch or The Verge or any place like that is the friction, like the the sparks that are flying between a person who is whose job is to be healthily oppositional to a person that is trying to tell their narrative, right? And that, that honing bit is what's exciting. It's like, you know, you mentioned disrupt, like the battlefield is exciting because it's actually real. Like we pick these companies and then throw them to the wolves and we tell the investors, you can ask anything you want. Like there's no glad handing, there's no, like, this is not a pantomime. It's probably one of the last real startup competitions on the planet. (laughs) A lot of the other ones are just really, really entertainment-based, right? That kind of thing happens with stories on the pages of Verge, TechCrunch, Times, other places like that, that, That's what brings the excitement. When you're reading this story, you're like, what's going to happen next? Like, what, you know, what did they tease out of them, right? That they didn't want to say or weren't ready to say, but they're like, fuck it, I'm going to say it, I believe it, you know? Like, what truth did you draw out of them? And it's not about a gotcha, it's about like having a honing edge to pull out the truth. This is, you and I both know, Editing, right? Yeah. Like this is the editorial process, right? And like that's what a lot of these places lacked is like they viewed editing as a job as like putting things in the right package. But when in fact Editing is all about taste and curating, like a curatorial uh, force, yeah. um, you know, Steve Jobs as editor type thing if you want to go there, right? Like, And that's that, I think, is the important bit that I think a lot of these places miss. They viewed the media as the easy part and the money as the hard part when, in fact – many times it's the other way around. Like, you know, any media company can succeed if you apply money in the appropriate way. Unfortunately, most people don't want to hear that the appropriate way is a lot of people, (laughs) a lot (laughs) of really good people, you know, like that's what drives media. So
1: my friend Casey Newton is fond of saying that anybody can get traffic and it is impossible to build an audience. And that's the Mm -hmm. thing, right? The taste you are describing requires you to have a point of view and stay focused on it instead of doing what people want to hear uh Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of wreckage in the ravine over the past decade in media right like you and i've lived through maybe too much like maybe too many changes TechCrunch is right you've done a few things that are different you launched a paid tier with extra crunch Mm -hmm. i remember talking to you about it at launch the idea there was there was a need in the market for informations for people building startups i think you told me that um uh, the the first product that clicked for you was reviews of like office furniture companies because there was just mm. none of this information out in the world. Th- that was genesis. Where has Extra Crunch landed now?
2: It's now rebranded as TechCrunch Plus. We gotta oh, get sorry. Our, our branding. No, no, it's totally fine. That branding itself tells a story, right? Because I think initially we viewed this as like extra TechCrunch, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was the thing. So extra Crunch, and the extra TechCrunch was what job could we do for readers? that was essentially self-funded by the reader, right? Like they're subscribing, that is the recurring revenue that drives this product. And eventually we want it to grow, obviously, to be more. TechCrunch Plus these days is a mixture of analysis of Industries that we view as kind of important and, and compelling and pivotal at the moment. Um, we do have some reporters writing about venture specific stuff there as well, because, you know, TechCrunch is sort of like the ultimate navel gazing, you know, publication, right? Like, we, we, our whole job is to go inwards more, right? Uh, and so they're a little bit about the architecture of, of venture, but then also. Um, important industries like, you know, climate tech and sustainability and and that sort of thing. But the content that does the best on TechCrunch Plus is still operational advice stuff. It's mm-hmm. like we we, you know, either interview and do our taste thing or bring in experts to write about operational stuff because... If you want to drill back to the earliest days of us discussing this from the editorial side, you know, the business side, of course, very straightforward. Like, we need recurring revenue. How do we generate that, right? And my job was, like, okay, how do we do that but, like, actually make a good product for (laughs) for our readers, right? You know, not just sell them on something that's worthless. The whole original conversation was there are a ton of startups, a ton of founders that are outside of the normal Stanford to Sand Hill Road ecosystem. How do we unlock the expertise and individual knowledge and, you know, really nitty-gritty, grindy stuff for them with a small, relatively speaking, subscription fee that can give them so much more information about the way this world works, even if they live in Ohio or India or wherever else? They can, like, unlock the knowledge that it takes to build companies and scale companies and and do this with a relatively small investment without having access to the networks that drive a lot of this information. It's like if you get funded by A16Z, they're going to provide you with all of the growth experts you need. They're going to get you probably your first customers, you know, YC's uh, companies, their first thousand customers usually are other YC companies, right? Yeah. Like and, and that's not a bad thing, right? It's that's a great benefit for being a YC company. I don't know if those are, are the, how the churn is on that, but at the very least you've got action in, in your network and your building and all of that. But what about all the people outside of those networks? As big as YC's got and it can't fund everybody and it can't bring everybody into its network, nor does it choose to. So how do you give access to that information to everyone? Our ambitions for that product, and for other things that we launched over the years, were, uh, just to be frank, like severely curtailed by the fact that the various owners of TechCrunch over the years didn't really want to invest in it in the ways that we wanted to. They wanted to invest it in in weird, trendy ways, which you and I both have seen all of those trends come and go. I would say what Uh, you and and I talk about
1: the most over time is fighting off the weird,
2: trendy shit. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because... When you have a bit of leverage and a bit of you know clout uh, and are able to exercise your, your leverage to fight off bad ideas and all of that stuff, it's gratifying, but it's also exhausting, yep. right? It becomes like a good portion of the job. And I am – just to be really clear, like the current owners of, of TechCrunch are actually – really smart and understand the value of it. The CEO, Jim Lanzone, not only has led a couple of really big media turnarounds, but also launched his company at Disrupt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he knows exactly the value of, you know, what TC has for the industry. But I'm definitely commenting on previous. First of all, they haven't really been around long enough, you know, to, to screw anything up. Uh, but I don't think they are. You know, I think they view this as a growth opportunity for TC. And I, it's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be like in this moment stepping away because yeah. it's like, OK, finally, like people that get it. Right. Because there were a lot of previous owners of this. And honestly, nobody was malicious. I have to say this. It was never like any weird cackling villain above us in the corporate architecture of like AOL or Oath or Verizon or whatever that was like, finally, we get to mess with TechCrunch. It was it never felt like that. It was 100% the malaise of big corp yeah. stuff.
1: When I worked at AOL, the phrase that we always used was uh, Steve Jobs quote. It was the bozo explosion. It was was just a lot of people who had an idea and they could glue it to our thing without any understanding of our thing. And we'd be like, no, just because it's a big audience doesn't mean they're just going to do whatever thing that you think is going to happen here.
2: And that will actually
1: over time dilute the brand and remove the audience, which I feel very comfortable making fun of AOL because I haven't worked there a long time. But (laughs) over time, that is what happened to almost every AOL property save TechCrunch.
2: Yeah. And and you know, though, I think one of the only reasons it didn't happen to us is because we were willing to sort of leverage their fear, I guess, is the word. And I don't mean fear in some sort of weird way. It's like a godly fear. They're like, ah, you know, like what will they write about us? Like, what will they say about <laughs> us if we make them do this, right? And we, I was happy to utilize that, right? Um, It's not like it had any, like, really hateful relationships. And honestly, everybody was, I like, I liked Tim Armstrong. I yeah, I think he's a great salesman and, and a really smart guy. And, like, I liked a lot of the people. But the architectures around those things, remember, were being, like, pushed and pulled by these billion dollar flips, you know, yep. these acquisitions by much larger corporations to which TechCrunch was essentially like a, a drop of sweat rolling off the back of an animal, right? They were like, what is this thing, you know? and But at the same time, the brand halo was super strong. And so there was the temptation to be the person who, like, did the big thing with TechCrunch. And by this, I mean the people above us, right? And, you know, I had good partners over the years, thankfully, in in our business side. You know, we were able to fend off a lot of that with a lot of very long memos, (laughs) uh, maybe some threats, maybe some, you know, like, very, very polite, very straightforward threats. But, like, it is honestly a, uh, it's a miracle that it exists the way it does now. And I 100% credit that to, well, I will take, like, some small credit in that, I was happy to spend the sweat and blood that it took to protect it over time. That was fine by me, right? Like that labor I viewed as part of the job, it absolutely did limit, I think, the fun bits for me. You know, like I would have loved to have done a lot more, launched a lot more. Like there's so many things I wanted to launch and do and create and, you know, help this team do. But I understood that my Roll. If I didn't do it, nobody was gonna do it. Like if I didn't do it, if I said yes, they would have just roll rolled right over the rest of it, right? Um, and I think that's and pe- you know people would have left. Whatever. I'm not saying people would have just said yo yeah, okay yeah whatever. But it would have ruined the thing that existed. Yeah. And so I was willing to sort of put in that sweat. But the regrets that I do have are all the things we could have done. You know <laughs> that that's the regret. You know, but I was only able to do it really, really, really because. We have a long, an unusually long tenured team. You know, a lot of people had been there eight years, 10 years, 12 years, like, which is crazy in media, completely unheard of, you know. I mean, not completely, but you know what I mean. It's rare.
1: Yeah, the average is 18 months, right?
2: Exactly. So, and that was, that meant continuity. Like continuity of understanding what TC was, what it is, what its role is, the balance, as you mentioned before, between like getting snowblown by all these, you know, smart, young, uh, brazen people building technology. And also yet saying, but we retain optimism, you know, that some of this stuff is going to be really cool and clever and world-changing in a a positive way. And so skepticism, not cynicism, you know, taking that through, you know, pulling that through line all the way through the – the the years the t- eight to ten years of service like right now the senior leadership of TechCrunch that I'm leaving behind uh, at the top has like a hundred years of TechCrunch experience it's pretty crazy <laughs> right like it's it's a lot of of tenure there and I think that's what maintains the culture right so, you cannot write a handbook yeah. to like <laughs> you know make that culture stick
1: is this why you're stepping away right you're you've got some ownership that is stable, that you you seem to like. You've got a team that's ready and you're exhausted by the fights. I mean, because it is true that over the years I've seen you and often at events and we've been excited to do our jobs because covering Mm -hmm. the events is maybe the best part of the job. And then we get to talking and you're like, I could see that it was weighing on you, that there were things you (laughs) wanted to do that Verizon or AOL or whatever random owner TechCrunch had at the minute was just not going to let you do And it, Are you saying basically you've gotten to the point where you're comfortable It's time?
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's it. There's nothing deeper really behind it. There is good people in place. Like there's always another crisis, right? There's always another foundation level crisis coming around the bend. And there were so many of those. You only have to look back a couple of years. Okay, COVID, like, oh, crud, you know, we got to do virtual events all of a sudden. How are we going to turn a an enormous 10,000 person in-person event into a virtual one? The COVID thing there's uh, acquisitions, there's been three, you know, like, it's constant pushes of the reset button, right, where I'm like, cool, 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 like, I can, and there's a reset, you know, no, no, hold on, let me figure this out, let me help, you know, let me make sure this lands correctly, all of that, and then I finally got to the point where I was like, okay, you know, like, this is the moment, if I don't do it now, and I used the 10-year anniversary (laughs) of my joining as a sort of excuse to throw myself out of the nest, you know, it was one of those things. Mm -hmm.
1: We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back.
0: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work
1: We're back. And after all those questions about the past, it's time to start looking into the future. You have a successor, Connie She was at TechCrunch yeah. and she left to start her own newsletter. The newsletter has been reacquired. She's going to be the new editor-in-chief. I read her note. She There's one line in there that really stuck to me. It's, We're going to do more original reporting. Do you think that's going to be a change? Is that a, a, a new emphasis or is that more of more of the same with more attitude?
2: Yeah, I I think that's for her to decide and define, and I I wouldn't want to like walk over her on any of that stuff. I think that the – I will speak on a trend basis. I think all of us always struggle with this idea that if you want to generate traffic, a large portion of that traffic is going to come from stories that have already broken. Simple, right? Like if your job is to generate attention, then something people already know about that they're searching for more information about is an easy win on the traffic front. So – I don't know, you know, Instagram launches a thing or requires a thing or whatever. And we didn't break this story, but we bring, say, original analysis to the story. You know, obviously we would never just parrot somebody else's reporting. We would want to add reporting and, and kind of write. Um, if you're going to do that kind of work, you're going to generate traffic because people already know what that thing is. But ironically, TechCrunch is in the business of writing about things nobody's ever heard about. Yeah, And so traffic has always been tough, right? Like, it's hard. And we've done well over the years, and we've grown significantly, which is a testament to everybody's ability (laughs) on the TechCrunch staff to get people excited about this thing they've never heard of, right? Uh, Or or at least help them to understand that they should be interested in it. And that's the balance, right? And that's the balance you'll have to strike, all of that. And the thing that will be pivotal to this is – and this is her job now, thankfully, is to make sure that she has alignment all the way up to the top of the business stack, you know, to the CEO, that if TechCrunch's job is to do original reporting and tell people about things they've never heard about, which has always been a primary part of its job, if not the job, traffic has got to be part of the conversation. we got to talk about this as like, hey, traffic may grow slower. It may be lower. It may be whatever, but we'll provide value in these other ways, right? And because disrupt makes money right? Advertising, yes, makes money, for sure. TechCrunch Plus is making more and more money every day, which is great. You know, all of these things are functioning businesses, right? TechCrunch is a functioning, working business that is great, you know, that, that works well. However, advertising re- revenue is important to a publication, right, in this current environment. That is a balance that you have to strike. And so, like, that's her job going forward is to figure out ways to twiddle those dials to make sure that the traffic keeps growing, but that if you want to emphasize original reporting, you have to by nature understand that original means new and new generally means you got to convince people to be interested, right? Yeah. So that's it.
1: So let's end with some big things for the future media. You're, you're gone now. You know, this is the stuff that keeps me up at night. So you just tell me what to do. You mentioned sure. stuff people are searching for, right? There's already interest in this thing. They're going to find it because you're, you're going to deliver some more value. That is a distribution channel that feels like it's going to change, right? That they, I think most media companies are existentially dependent on Google in a way that they're only just realizing now because of generative AI. Then generative AI itself, media companies that care less about anything but traffic are already deploying it basically to arbitrage search results and get traffic for their crappy ads. That's two trends that are just, those are freight trains pointed at each other and the the resulting explosion is going to wipe out an entire generation of media companies, I think. How do you see that? If you were going to be running TechCrunch for the next couple of years, how would you manage those two things?
2: I, I'm not going to couch this in terms of what I would I do if I ran TechCrunch. Totally unfair to Connie and not my job. However, if I was to, say, run a, a media company, y, XYZ. And I was trying to determine what my path would be forward. I think niche media is going to be the thing that survives this next burst of energy. I think people value focused information from obsessives. People that genuinely go to sleep thinking about something, wake up thinking about it, and are willing to put in the effort to, to be at the point of inflection with their audience constantly. That is tiresome work. It is exhausting work, but it's also exciting work if it's the thing you're truly obsessed with. So we're seeing publications like, you know, Punchbowl. They're doing really well. I think they're profitable. Uh, um, I don't know uh, exactly what they're – I don't know anything about their, their revenue, but I think that they're doing well. Um, I don't, they haven't raised any more capital after their initial raise. They cover, like, Congress by via newsletter, right? Like, what happened in the halls of Congress today? Very specific, right? Very specific audience. That kind of thing is the thing we're going to be seeing more of. Specific audiences with specific needs being addressed by people that know all of the memes that they know, right, that are up to the moment with the thing that is happening with that, you know, particular area of obsession and that are willing to take the conversation further from there. Tell them something they don't know about that thing. I think that is the power of that. And it is forward-looking. It is of the moment, so inherently, at least up now, uh, it sidesteps the whole Gen AI model scraping thing, right? Because all of those models are two years old right now. And even if they get to a few months old, or even a few minutes old, if you're telling people something they don't know, and they come to you as a primary source, who cares? You know, whatever AI does with it after that. <laughs> if you're generating original thought, right, endlessly, uh, and and fresh information, then the remixing of it is a sort of, like, non, non-entity to you. Now, obviously, that does torpedo all of the businesses that were in the business yeah, yeah. of re-reporting and, you know, repackaging and, and taking that fresh information and redistributing it through larger channels. So it could be that, like, the media industry overall stays roughly the same size, but every organization within media is much smaller you know, and much leaner. And like, that's just the way that it works now, right? Is that it's five to 10 people that really obsess about a thing that run a several million dollar business about X, right? And that's it, you know, yeah. and like that, that's, that's one shape I could see it taking.
1: Were you using any AI tools in the TechCrunch newsroom, ChatGPT to do drafts, the things other people are doing?
2: No. Mm-mm. Yeah, we our internal policy, um, which I think we, we published externally at some point, but I can't remember. But our just policy is like, hey, you know, mess with these tools as much as possible. You need to understand them, right? You need to understand what they do, what they don't do, you know, how deep they go, what the capabilities are, what the possibilities are. But we don't put any AI-generated words on TechCrunch, period, you know, nor do we even use them to generate story ideas or headlines or any of that stuff. Uh, it's all it's all uh, meat space all the way down uh, yeah. for, for now anyway
1: yeah our view is what are we selling we're selling we're selling us right Like we're yeah, we're here that's we're, right. we're the people you trust we, we should give that to the customer um yeah although our our policy is slightly different which is just be honest like i i personally have published ai generated copy onto the verge i just put a lot of words around it saying look at the garbage <laughs>
2: I can't, yeah, get, yeah, I, yeah. I can't get
1: anybody to be outraged about it. It's driving me crazy. Yeah. It would go bonkers if people were more outraged about it. But it
2: hasn't yeah, been I now. mean, we've definitely put some stuff out there, but obviously clearly labeled and and yeah. and really specifically about like this is what we're writing about, you know. Uh, and I don't, honestly, I don't know that it's – it's not like I have any sort of theological thing, right? It's just I think it's – it behooves ourselves to like value, as you said, like the human quotient, like why, why else are we here? And then, you know, if there comes a time to utilize it, to amplify things or to, to use it in a fun or clever, or interesting way. Cool. That's fun. Do it. You know, who cares? So it was not like some sort of like theological anti AI, you know, thing. Yeah. It was just like, no, nah, our job is to write the stuff. So we're going to write the stuff, you know?
1: We'll end it here. What's next for you, Matt? What's the next thing you're going to do here?
2: I do not know. As of currently, um, the public uh, stance is that I'm doing some consulting for for Yahoo, which obviously includes uh, landing some disrupt, uh, a disrupt for them next week. So I'll be doing that. That's what's next for me immediately. And then long term, I don't know. I want to I wanna build something new. I want to work on something. I'd love to, you know, kind of create something uh, or help somebody create something that is fresh and uh, that I think is clever. And that's about as far as I've, I've taken the thought. In media um, or not media? Uh, probably not. <laughs> I, need a, I need a break for media, and media probably needs a break from me. Uh, it's not like I would object, but I think maybe I want to try something a little different for a while, you know?
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Well, Matt, I have to say I'm happy we're still going to be friends, but it has been great having you as a friend and a competitor uh, this past decade. Uh, I'm sure Connie's going do great as well. Too. But it's been, it's been great hanging out with you and talking shop a little bit. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Let me bloviate a bit.
1: Thanks again to Matt for taking the time to talk with me today, and importantly, for being both a friend and a pretty ferocious competitor over the years. I'd also like to thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. One note, the Code Conference is coming up September 26th and 27th. If you haven't registered, there's just a few slots left. Go to voxmedia.com slash code. You can apply to attend there. Virtual tickets are also on sale now if you're interested in attending virtually. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoderverge.com or hit me up on Threads. I'm at Reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. Check it out at DecoderPod. It's a lot of fun. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you love the show. Hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production on the verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode is produced by Kate Cox and Nick Stat. It was edited by Callie Wright. The decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.